Man Enough. I am Justin Baldoni. I'm Liz Plank. I'm Jamie Heath. And we got a special episode today. Oh, I feel like we say that woman. a lot, but this we is, do, this, but is this... Uh, this is another level. Mm-hmm. Spiritual and scholarly is how I could describe the yes. feeling that I that you you don't have those two intersect very often. You get one or the other, and you're going to get both. I love hearing you say spiritual. <laughs> I love hearing you say that, Liz. So uh, who are we even talking about? Yeah, uh, Doctor. Joy DeGru, hmm. who uh, who I know is like an auntie to you. Indeed. Who is the author of an incredible, powerful book that should be mandatory reading, Post-Traumatic Slave Syndrome. Um, but aside from that, has done a tremendous amount of research, specifically on trauma, hmm. is friends with guys like Tony Porter, hmm. and A Call to Men has spoken at their conferences and things like that. And uh, wow, she's just, she's just something else. Mm-hmm. And also, by the way, we don't have often, um, because of the name of the show, women guests. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's not a wonder to me that one of the best ones is when we have a woman on. Yep. Um, yeah. But I will also say this. This episode and what she speaks of, you may not think appeals to you. She said it. You might skip over it. You see a black woman. You're going to hear her relate to race a lot. Um, but in there is so many solutions to what we're talking about. Um, So I encourage you, even though oftentimes you're like, I don't want to sit through another race conversation. It's not a race conversation. Stick around with us, listen to it. That's what I ask. So we will be right back with Dr. Joy DeGruy. This is Man Enough. Hello and welcome back to the Man Enough podcast. I am Justin Baldoni here with Liz Plank and Jamie Heath. And wow, do we have? Do, are we in the presence of greatness today, <laughs> or, or, or I mean, can you guys feel it? Mm-hmm. Doctor Joy DeGru. Mm-hmm. Hi. Hi. It's so nice to have you here. It's nice to be here, actually. Mm-hmm. It's a good thing I know who I am. You guys have to <laughs> mess with my head. <laughs> I know who you are too. And um, you, we, you know, we've known each other and of each other for years. We're we're Baha'is, as Jamie is, and um, and your brother, Oscar, was hugely instrumental in my life and in my spiritual growth, as I know he was for you. Absolutely, <laughs> more forcibly for me. More forcibly yeah. for you, and uh, and for Jamie as well. Well, like a, I'll say this, Joy, I've known my entire life, um, and there are a few people in the world, you know, that have impact. Uh, that change your scope. Um, her brother, Oscar, as you mentioned, was a man that snatched me when I was about 10 years old. I had already known him, but snatched me and demanded that I be a part of something, the Baha'i Youth Workshop at that time. Um, so her family all over had a big influence. But then Joy, um, at one point, because you're younger than Oscar, um, all of a sudden emerged and what we all say, sorry, Oscar, uh, your sister done surpassed you. <laughs> uh, because this woman here is stupid brilliant. Well, speaking of that, Liz, do you want to rattle off some of her oh, extremely just long? some, <laughs> yes. <laughs> so Dr. Joy DeGruy is a world-renowned author, researcher, educator, and speaker with over 30 years of practical experience as a professional in the field of social work. Uh, I tell it like it is ambassador for healing, love it, Uh, and a voice uh, for those who've struggled in search of the past and continue to struggle through the present. In addition to your pioneering work in the explanatory theory and book, Post-Traumatic Slave Syndrome, uh, you've developed evidence-based models for working with children, with youth, with adults of color, and their communities. Thank you so much for being here with us. Thank you for inviting me. This is going to be exciting. I'm looking forward to it. So we start off every interview with this question, which is, when was the last time you didn't feel enough? Wow. Um, I would say that for me, uh, as a parent, as a grandparent, that I'm always as well as the child struggling the most. Mm. What can I do? What could I have done better? Mm. Uh, When I see the people I love struggle, and, you know, am I enough? You know, and mm-hmm. that's kind of a, a, a regular rotating thing that happens. And then I come back around. I get centered. Yeah. But that's that's frequent. I'm always looking out at my family and even beyond them, you know, people whose lives I've touched and determine whether or not I could have done more. 
Mm. Did you say it's a human feeling to not feel enough? (laughs) Yeah. And it's a humbling thing, but it's a good thing because it it really inspires you to to grow, you know, Mm. and to be patient and to uh, love yourself. And I think that sometimes we are harder on ourselves than anyone else. In, in the dark, in the secret, in the back, you mm-hmm. know. Uh, so I think it reminds us that we have work to do, and that's okay. Hmm. Now, you know, we normally ask that question to men, and sometimes it's very interesting. Sometimes, <laughs> so, sometimes there's not an answer. <laughs> sometimes it's like, I no, I, I always feel enough. I don't know that feeling. So I'm, cur- I'm curious, in your life, just as a woman moving through the world, why do you think it's harder for men to uh, admit to not feeling enough? Wow, that's a really big question. Um, So you have, first of all, um, African-American woman, 63 years old. I come from a different time, right? A different cohort, a different uh, set of variables that set up my life. And in my encounters, both you know, personally, professionally, I'm a clinician, you know, um, I also have worked in mental health and specifically working with men and boys. I asked the question, one, of my colleagues, most of whom were white males, what does the word respect mean to you? What does it mean for you to be respected? And these are people who are my colleagues who respect me and respect my work. And they said, well, Joy, for us, and this is what it came out to, an earned regard. This is what white males Mm. said. You know, you have this sense of an earned regard. How ironic. Interesting, isn't it? So then I asked black males and females. I asked black people in general, males and females. I said, what does respect mean to you? And it was so different. They said, it's my worth. It's my value. It's, I mean, it was so much further below the epidermis. Mm -hmm. So now let's go back to that question. What does respect mean? And what is it? Why do we have this so notion, a question of not being enough? Mm. Respect literally means, taken from the Latin, spect is where we get the word spectacle, to see or to look. Re is again, look mm. again. That's what it means to respect. Please look at me again. Mm. Please just look at me. That's what they were asking. Look at me the way you see your own son in your own world, and goodness, can you look again? And maybe if you look again, maybe you'll see my humanity. Maybe you see my vulnerability, my brokenness, my wholeness. Maybe you'll see to look again. That's literally what it meant. And it was such a a moment for me when I went to Africa the first time and I was there for six weeks um, when I was greeted. The tribal languages would always translate the greeting into I see you. Mm. That's what the greeting was. Hey, you know, I would say, what's up? How you doing? They go, I see you. I see you. And I realized how much I missed that. When I started working with men, boys in particular, uh, and you should really, oh my God, you should call um, Howard Stevenson, a really good friend of mine. He wrote the, the racial socialization scale. That okay. was his scale. He was an amazing human being. And um, I saw a video of these boys. They're all, you know, they're all 12-year-olds. It's a 12-year-old basketball camp, right? <laughs> right? I always think this is so unfair because you have the kids that have had the growth spurt and the ones that haven't, right? So yeah. they're all 12, <laughs> but one's like really short and one's really tall, right? And it just seems unfair to me. I mean, yeah. it's just there's no in-between. <laughs> you know, personally, I don't care that they're 12. That doesn't seem fair. Right. So what happens is this one little kid dunks on the other little kid who's little. He can, you know, he's really short. Yeah. And of course, everybody's like, oh man, why he dunked on you? And the kid starts crying. He gets mm. mad. And he starts walking over and pushing and just pushing the kid. And the other kid, he's 12 too. Like, you know, why are you pushing me? You know? And then of course, the coaches, the refs come in, they pull him apart and he's going, no, no, let me go, let me go. And he said, I'm not going to let you go. I'm not going to let you go. I'm going to just hold you. And what Howard witnessed In all of his work, his work is called Play, Preventing Long-Term Anger and Aggression in Youth. He was never able to stop anger, but he could stop aggression. And that moment taught him is to touch them. Mm. He says, our children have become untouchable. And that boy melted in his arms when that coach just held him. Mm -hmm. 
He said, touch, literally touch, reduced aggression. So a huge part of answering that question, I think, um, comes from the work that I've done uh, in terms of working at violence. So my area of expertise is actually trauma and violence, okay? So my research looked at 200, uh, in this case, African-American males between the ages of 14 and 20, mm-hmm. 100 of whom were incarcerated, 100 of whom were not, all from the same socioeconomic, but everything was the same, controlled for everything, same neighborhood. The only thing different about these two groups of young men um, was one group was in, engaged in culture-specific, um, positive uh, male uh, mentorship programs. They were engaged in some self-work. Mm-hmm. That's the only difference between the group. What I was looking at ultimately was use of violence. I wanted to know uh, how we could predict violence among these young men, mm-hmm. right? Which was really, it was a very interesting thing, what I discovered. Because I didn't even want to look at violence, <laughs> to be perfectly honest. I wanted to look at esteem, something I call vacant esteem in my work. I wanted to look at how, how we got there. But my dissertation committee said, that's not a social problem. Uh. You have to look at a social problem. I'm going, well, 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 hold up. How is that not a social problem? <laughs> now, a social problem is a social problem to the degree that significant people think it's a social problem mm. and significant numbers of people think it's a social problem. Mm. So they said, but we'll look at violence because we're scared of y'all, <laughs> essentially. And those significant people, and by significant people, do white you mean people. white people? <laughs> you mean yeah. Important people, people who say what's important, mm-hmm. right? Um, and I'm looking at that dependent variable of use of violence. That's ultimately what I'm trying to predict. Mm. So I had five different scales that I looked at, one of which I wrote, which is called the African-American Adolescent Respect Scale. I actually looked at the variable of respect, which is, stay with me, with this is powerful, mm-hmm. because I had no idea it would have the impact it did. Mm-hmm. So I, I'm literally going to answer your question. No, I'm, I'm just, in school. I love it. It takes me a while to get there. So I'm, I'm looking at, one, violence victimization. These are my variables that I'm looking at to predict. So we know, based on the literature, the dreams of data, that the more you're victimized, the more likely you're going to be violent. Mm-hmm. That's just how it goes. It's, these are baseline variables. And the other one is violence witnessing. Mm. So we also know that the more you witness violence, the more likely you'll be violent. Right. And these are baseline because I want to, you know, I want to tease out, you know, what we know. Mm-hmm. The third one is called daily urban hassles. Daily urban hassles. This is a scale that looks at, you know, uh, do you hear sirens in your neighborhood? Do people approach you trying to sell you drugs? Do you try to find a safer route home from work or school? My hypothesis, the more of that, the more violence. Now, that's a more culture-based one, mm-hmm. right, in some ways. Because, again, I'm looking at black boys and yeah. men. So the middle variable, the middle category, are called sociocultural. One is called positive racial socialization. So okay. when you, racial socialization, like, you know, what, what it's real interesting how people get polarized around this. You know, you shouldn't be talking about race. If we just didn't talk about it, we wouldn't have any problems, right? Which is nuts, right? But uh, then there's this other piece which says, I tell, I raise my sons to understand that in America, that they're black in America. Now, nobody in America at this juncture can question the need to do that given police use of deadly force, historical trauma, marginalization, violence, anti-blackness, whichever you come up with. We are all clear. Mm-hmm. Well, black folks have known for a long time that we need to help our children. Yeah, be a good person. We want you to understand this. But this is how you survive, living in an, an arena that is potentially hostile towards you. Mm-hmm. Okay, So I'm hypothesizing that the more we positively racially socialize our children, tell them that you're not a descendant of slaves, you're a descendant of captured free men and women, right? You, um, you have a, a, a spiritual base that you can go to. And if I'm not here, you can get auntie, pookie, your cousin, Michael, everybody here for you, right? So we, we begin to create an environment in which we enrich and buttress you by giving you that positive, positive sense of who you are and how you move through the world. That's one. So my hypothesis, more of that, less violence. The last variable 
right? Because I am, of course, my interest in all this, any good researcher, you know, I know that I'm trying to understand what black has to do with it. Okay, at the end of the day, I want to know what does historical trauma in black have to do with the use of violence? Mm. And I'm trying to find the linchpin that'll help me. So I'm walking around the neighborhood. You know, I'm at the basketball. Why do you think, you know, folks are violent? Well, you know, you diss somebody. Can't be dissing people. You know, if you diss them, of course, right? Now, then I went inside, talked to folks incarcerated. So why do you think there's so much, you know, violence, particularly with men and African? Well, you know, you diss somebody. <laughs> it kept coming back. Wow. So I went back to my committee and I said, I have to look at the variable of respect. They went, great, go in the literature, find a scale and use it. Well, there wasn't one. Hmm. So Dr. Joy wrote one, which was like, oh, how could she do this? She doesn't understand the psychometric properties. She's a student, right? They were like, I said, well, we can always just throw it out if it doesn't you know, perform well. Of course, you know, I wrote a scale. In the scale, I wanted to know what black boys thought about respect with regard to their family first, with regard to their peers, their, with regard to recognized authority and institutions. Hmm. That's what I wanted to know. So I asked all 200 of these young men, all my hypotheses were correct. Respect being one that said that the more respected a black male felt, the less likely he'd be violent. And the more disrespected, the more violent. Mm. So when I start looking at some of this stuff, it's thick. It's not yeah. a one answer. It's a lot of layers here. And it's very individual. Of course, we're all unique human beings. But what I'm learning is some very basic things that we're forgetting. Mm. Our humanity. No, boy, don't be no punk. Don't, 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 don't you cry. Don't you. All of that stuff. Yeah. When we literally are feeling something different at the exact same time. So we have to look at all that outside stuff that's stopping us from touching our own children. And so I think part of uh, what we're seeing in this, this struggle with masculinity and this struggle with being man enough, what does that mean, right? And why is it we can't be still and understand our intrinsic nobility as human beings, our intrinsic worth? And I, and I think a lot is wrapped up in that. A lot of what we see people do, I mean, I always say to people, it's the secrets that make you sick. And as a clinician, as a therapist, it was inevitably that thing. And, and what, are, what is the secret that I feel vulnerable? <laughs> you know, like they say, don't, you don't want to you know, act like a little girl. I mean, it's a pejorative. Anything I do with females has to somehow is a pejorative. You know, don't quit being a little girl. Quit being a little bee. All those stuff that it's all about. What, what are we saying here? And the virtues of kindness and mercy and, and forgiveness and compassion, those are all considered feminine. <laughs> feminine. That's not feminine. It's human. Yep. At what point do we lose our humanity enough that we can't even see virtue outside of this, you know, polarized male-femaleness? Are you kidding me? Right. So anyway, I don't even know if I answered. No, can I ask you something (laughs) real quick? I I don't even know what a question was. Bowing, bowing to the information, to the knowledge. Uh, uh, Thanks for laying that out for us. I I have a question. Okay. Um, You got so much that is so important. And oftentimes you speak to the root cause of things, which is important. Okay. So now we're on a show called Man Enough. That's right. We got men listening. Some of them are willing to do some self-discovery and some work. Some of them are not. Right but we are trying to get them to, all of us to, to look at ourselves and how is masculinity, uh, how does it help us? How has it not served us? How has it not served humanity as a whole? How are we holding women back? All all of it. So for someone who's not black listening, how do they relate to what you just said? You know, what's so amazing with the experience that I have um, when people, you know, when when they're working with me is we're looking at how you got here. So everything that I just talked about, spoke to everyone on different levels at different points in their lives. We always want to figure out how we got here, but this is how we got here. Mm-hmm. So now when, we, when we, we do that self-examination and start doing that personal work around, um, you know, like, for example, if I were to say you, you need to do a self-inventory or a self-assessment. Well, I'm a clinician. Everybody knows what that means. I had someone, a young man, reach out to me. I gave an assignment of doing some, a self-assessment to kind of take a look at yourself, to do an introspective, meditate. He wrote me back and said, I don't understand your assignment. I said, well, I want you to, you know, kind of go inside. He said, how do you do that? So I said, where are you in your room right now? I 
I said, I want you to sit down. And I literally walked him through being still, breathing, listening to his thoughts, understanding that they're intrusive thoughts, focusing on. I walked him through what I assumed every human being pretty much knew how to do, right? And I'm just saying those assumptions we can't make. We ask people to do things, and they don't know how to do it. And I want to answer that with, uh, again, I wish I had um, more time. You know me. Mm -hmm. But this is something that specifically deals with that, specifically deals with men. So 15-year-old big kid for his age gets a case. I work for another, I coach another organization. He gets a case where he's walking through the mall, and everywhere he goes, whenever he stops for 30 seconds, uh, you know, the, the mall security, you need to move along. You're more loitering. You're loitering. And every time he moves along, and they made the mistake of putting their hands on him. And he was tossing police and every whoever all off of him. He catches an assault call a case. Um, we're trying to get these young people off. He's only 15, off paper, so he doesn't end up in the adult system. And I said to him, what's going on that you would, that you, you know, because he had no memory of half the stuff he did once he did it. He was no drugs involved here. I said, Jerome, what we're looking at here is a stress hormone, cortisol. When cortisol uh, floods the brain, someone comes in here with a gun, the part of your brain that accesses reason is no longer there for you. It's fight or flight. You're going to do whatever you need to do to survive that situation. You following me? Now, when that gets triggered, you ain't there. We asked you 10 minutes later, we're outside. What happened? You go, I don't remember anything other than the gun. Roll it back to this kid, Jerome. We have a conversation about cortisol. I give him an article on cortisol to help him understand that it, not only that, it becomes habitual. And it also becomes one of those things that gets triggered. You've seen it. Everyone here has seen it. You've watched a bunch of kids, friends, mm -hmm. all boys, all men, males. They're hanging around, but you can feel it revving up. You say something's getting ready to jump off. You can feel it. Get, they're, going to, they're actually going to trigger the cortisol. Mm -hmm. Now, back to Jerome. So, Jerome, you know about cortisol. Yeah. So you think you got a lot of, oh, yeah. I think I got a lot of, I said, how about people in your family? Oh, everybody in my family got a lot of cortisol going on. I said, okay. I said, here is a, a box and it has a red button. If I push the button, missiles will go off. I said, if I push the button, missiles go off, can I call them back? Nope. What can I do to stop them? Don't push that button. I said, that's what we're going to learn. We're going to learn. Don't push that button. What you mean? I said, you have a cortisol button. <laughs> I said, let's figure it out. What happens just before the missiles go off? I don't know, Miss Joy. Yes, you do. Oh, oh, well, well, let me think. What happens in your body? Mm. Oh, my, oh, yeah, yeah. My hands start sweating. Uh, and sometimes I could feel my heart beating. I said, what's that telling you? It means that the button's going to get pushed. I said, okay. I said, so now it got, long story short, he, he's in high school now. He's, in, he's like a senior. Comes to my office. And this took about a year of working with him. Hand, you know, you know. He says, uh, yo, Miss Joy, I was walking in the cafeteria. And I saw my boys, they were throwing around this styrofoam box, hitting people in the head. I could see, I just turned, walked out the room. So here was a young man that could anticipate the triggering of the cortisol. You following me? Mm -hmm. He could anticipate it because I need him to get there without me being there. I, get, I need him to get inside himself. Are you, you following me? Mm -hmm. So what I, what I say to him, and this is in answer to what you're, what you're asking me, I'm, I'm saying to him, everyone that talked to Jerome, you need to get yourself together, young man. Get some self-control. What's wrong with you? You're not a stupid. Yeah. How cruel is that? He had no idea what was going on in his own body. He couldn't control something he didn't understand. That frightened him as much as it frightened everyone else. So we're asking people to do things that they don't know how to do and or had no experience. So what I'm saying to you, Jamie, is that have you, have you ever had a teacher say, go ahead and do the assignment when you didn't know how to do it? You know how that felt when everybody else seemed to know and you didn't want to raise your hand a fourth time? What I love about what you're saying for me is that this is how I walk through the world when it comes to race and also trying to have the conversation with men. I'm asking white people to have lenses that they don't have. And I'm getting frustrated because you don't see it. But if they don't have the lenses, they can't see it. There's no work to be done. So we have to go through the process of, of focusing their lenses. Same with men. Sometimes we get frustrated. Do it change, become this. Can't you see? And the truth is they can't. Mm -hmm. We can't. You are listening to the Man Enough podcast. We will be right back.
All right, welcome back to the Man Enough podcast. So my question is, and what I am trying to figure out in my head is I sit at this intersection of privilege. You, right, as a black man or you as a woman, have had to put up with a lot of shit from people that look like me and or from me your entire life. And again, it could be laundry or it could be microaggressions for racism or sexism, whatever it is. I've done all of them. <laughs> um, what is the balance between understanding that, you know what? Yeah, there are women dying right now, committing suicide because of all of the, the, the labor they have to do, um, because of the isolation and, and loneliness and depression and all of the stuff that's put on them. And there are black men walking around right now that are in prison and, and because of a system that benefits me. How do I move through the world with understanding that there has to be, as Alok said, compassion before comprehension, mm -hmm. but also saying like, okay, how do I start step one? Because there is a lot of men who are like, I just don't know why I can't do the laundry. There's a lot of men that are like, I don't think I'm racist. A lot of people, right? But at the same time, you still are not doing the laundry or you still are <laughs> racist. So I'm just curious, how do we have that conversation? Because there's, it just feels like for a lot of folks, there's so many, there's, there's like so many ideas flying back and forth. And, and oftentimes we don't know where to start, which is kind of why we started this podcast. It's like, this is step one. Let's have the conversation <laughs> because we're not even aware half the time. Does that make, did I even ask a question? Does that make yeah, sense? Yeah, it, it, it does make sense. And I think, uh, you know, I, I guess I'm at a place where in my life, and again, I'm in a different cohort than you all. Um, uh, and I got to look at what I have left, time I have left. Mm. Uh, and we, none of us know, but there's stuff that I want to make certain I do in my lane. I can't do what you do. You're already doing something. You're in this lane. You're having this conversation. You are literally, all of you, the three of you that have committed to this, are doing something. And I think that the first step for anyone, you know, has to begin with, you know, even just being curious. Just, just, just being curious. Let me, you know, start asking a few questions that maybe you've never asked of yourself or others about you, you know. And I, I think people would be very surprised with those answers that they've, they've just taken things for granted and mm. they've made some assumptions. And then, you know, I have done that at various points in my life and discovered phenomenal things about myself and how I've impacted other people. And you know, if we don't just take that first step, and you gotta have, be interested in it, right? Because yeah, you got folks that are gonna look at this podcast and skip it. Yeah. Right? They have no intention to have anything to do with it. It's nothing. Yeah. And all this stuff is overwhelming, but we got to go to the one place we can go, and that is ourselves. I have control over nothing except joy. Mm, and at the end of the day, you know, that's what I have to look at. You know, I have to look at, um, you know, what side of history I want to be on um, in this life. And I think that each individual has to ask themselves, in my own lane, in my own way, in my own world, how do I begin that process? But you got to want to, right? Mm -hmm. And sometimes like, things like this make people want to. They go, oh, yeah, I'm curious about that. I may check that out, right? So I think we can never know exactly, but there's always something someone can do. Liz, what do you, what, what's it, what's going on in your head? I can see <laughs> so that your, your brain has is, is, so is got some stuff I mean, in While there. you were talking about, her, I know, yeah, I'm, I love how she everywhere. takes notes. If I had a computer, I'd be Googling things too, because so much of what you're saying is bringing up uh, so much for me, you know, you, you were talking about cortisol levels, right? And, and helping this young man control that. But in the data, what we find is that even when black people are asleep, they, they have, have higher high hypertension, right, right? Than white people. Mm -hmm. So, so much of it is a, is, is subconscious, right? You're not controlling. I don't know how, how my cortisol levels or my hypertension, right? It's not, it's not really within my control. And it's a rational response to a dangerous world. Sure. You know, we talk so much about creating a safe space for for people and men, particularly in this podcast. But it is so different. Like, like I uh, wrote a book about masculinity, and and it was almost impossible. I got to a point where I was like, it is so fundamentally different to the experience of being a white man in America and the experience of being a black man in America. It's actually even more, depending on what data you look at, economic, social, medical, um, there are bigger gaps between white men and black men than between white women and black women. And there are big gaps between white women and black That's women. Right. And so much of your work is looking at trauma and how trauma is passed along. 
And if we look at black women in this country, five to six times more likely to lose their child in the first year. They're more likely to, uh, you know, maternal maternal and infant mortality is so much higher. So how much of this is us prioritizing black women? And that by prioritizing (laughs) black women, we help black men, but we also help everybody. Absolutely. <laughs> I have a chart that shows that, that very thing. You're, no, you're, you're, you're absolutely you're absolutely correct. I tend to, in my, in my professional experience, um, when people know better, they can do better. Mm-hmm. And I think first it is to know and then it is to do. And then there is that those, those folks that are courageous enough uh, to stand in the rifle site, uh, to stand um, in, in their truth in such a way that it, it goes against, you know, self-preservation. Mm-hmm. You know, there are those that do that. And I think, um, you know, when I looked at this kid, Jerome, right, and, and what I was able to give him, um, I, you know, I don't have any control over how much cortisol is in my body. We, we start talking about telomeres and what's going on with the brain. That's a whole other thing. But, Can you talk about that, actually? That's really interesting. <laughs> That's... Right, that it changes your yes. genetics. It changes your, yeah. gen- it changes your, your DNA. So, yeah. so epigenetics and, and, well, looking at telomeres in particular, the strands that hold the DNA together, they're like, you know, the ends of a jump rope. Mm-hmm. Um, and that sh- stuff like stress, cortisol, all of these things, oppressive things, actually deteriorate that. Mm-hmm. And therefore, your life expectancy is shortened, mm-hmm. right? But you can repair them. You can, you know, there's a way to begin to look at how you're minding, which yeah. is a large part of it, what you're doing inside your own head. But you, you think about these, I mean, these are heady things, but in some ways they're not. In other cultures and societies in the world, it just mm-hmm. it's common sense. You know, mm-hmm. you sit still, you take care of yourself. And these are folks that have little to nothing in terms of materially, mm-hmm. but in terms of their life expectancies and mm-hmm. all the, you know, it's so much greater because they've simplified things. They simplified it. We've complicated it. So now we got to go back and try to fix all the complexities mm-hmm. when there is a bit of simplicity here in terms of how we engage with one another, yeah. how we, how we treat one another. And we can do that culturally too, right? Absolutely. Repla- having more statues and celebrations, right, of, of, of black people in this country, right? It's not, it shouldn't just be, it shouldn't be on in, in individual people to, right. you know, have that black pride and, and de- uh, that concept that you talked about, the ra- the racial socialization, positive, positive, positive racial right? Mm-hmm. That we can do that as a culture. Sure. And that that would fundamentally, that could change DNA. Yes. Right? And I also think that there's a very strong role for women. Mm-hmm. Women are so much more powerful. Than, I mean, as I've gotten older, I realized how mm-hmm. much more powerful mm-hmm. that women are. Yeah. Um, if we can, if we are able to stand in it mm-hmm. and and navigate it. And I and I also think that men know that. <laughs> By the way. I think that's yes, why that's a whole other <laughs> kind of conversation. You are listening to the Man Enough podcast. We will be right back. All right, welcome back to the Man Enough podcast, Joy. I'm, God, I could hear you speak forever. Um, I'm curious. This is a little bit of a personal question. I was raised in the Baha'i faith, and in my TED talk, I quote Abdul Baha, where he says, "Humanity can be likened to a bird on one wing is male and the other wing is female, and it's not until those wings are equivalent in strength that the bird can fly." Um, so much of your work, while being research backed and qualitative is also spiritual. And I'm just curious, um, it's kind of a two part question. One is how has your faith influenced your work? And then also what gives you hope? Oh gosh, great questions. Um, there's a, a statement, this is actually what got me uh, very, very focused on historical trauma. Um, and there's a, a statement in the writings that talks about, because uh, unlike anywhere else I've ever been, the Baha'i faith specifically says we got to deal with the issue of race. Not generally love mankind. Black and white, y'all need to get together and figure this out. Mm-hmm. And you have stuff white folks you got to do, black folks you got stuff you got to do. And one of the things it said was, in, in speaking to, to white people and saying that the average white, a pers- white American has an inherent feeling of superiority. First of all, I'd never seen that. And yeah, I'd that never seen my That world. rocked my world, first of all, in a religious <laughs> kind of way. And then it, then it said, and that white people 
should master any level of impatience they may have and any lack of responsiveness. So they're saying that you do, you, if you make the reach and there isn't an immediate response, you must master any impatience at any lack of responsiveness on the part of a people that have sustained for so long such grievous and slow healing wounds. Now that statement was made, I want to say, in the 30s, 40s. So this is after slavery. This is after, I'm looking at all the things it's after. What are the slow healing wounds? And that's how I got post-traumatic slave syndrome. That's where it actually oh, came wow. from. Because I said, I am going to do the due diligence to do the deep dive, to figure out what those slow healing wounds are. What are those wounds? Um, and, so yeah. Can you define post-traumatic slave? Okay, here we go. I'm not going to try it. No, no, do it, but you got to give us a short version. Of course. Yeah. There's, there's no way I could not. <laughs> okay, so post-traumatic slave syndrome um, is an explanatory theory that looks at multi-generational trauma, which, again, is not new. We've looked at other groups, victims of natural disasters, victims of, you know, of, of violence, victims of Holocaust, victims. We've looked at everybody. I just looked at black people, essentially. And what I'm suggesting is not, it's not a diagnosis. It's like, that would be to pathologize the entire community. No, it's not. A, it is looking at a series of events that we, over time, had to adapt to and live with and figure out how to navigate through this level of hostility. Mm -hmm. And there is incredible resilience and strength and knowledge and growth, and there is incredible injury. And that injury, one of the reasons why we can't heal is you keep hitting me. Mm. <laughs> okay, mm -hmm. the, the, there's never been a period of time yeah. when healing could actually happen and acknowledgement of the heal that there mm. was healing that was necessary, right? So again, post-traumatic basically is what it sounds like. Post-traumatic slave syndrome is multi-generational trauma and its impact on people of African descent. Meaning, so so get, you, you tell a story about when someone shot, someone witnesses being shot, and then how we then treat. So um, what happens um, if when we start looking at uh, post-traumatic stress disorder, which is what most people immediately think about when they hear about post-traumatic slave syndrome, which it is not. But post-traumatic stress disorder occurs as a result of a single trauma. I shoot you, you're traumatized. Anyone that saw me shoot you, they're traumatized. Your family finds out you're shot, they're traumatized. And then it could be somebody sitting close by that did see you. They aren't, they're not traumatized because everybody's not traumatized by traumatic events. But when we're looking at generations of trauma, it's not plausible that people escape stress-related illness. So now let's, um, let's say that you, um, you have post-traumatic stress disorder, exaggerated startle response, a feeling of foreshortened future, difficulty falling or staying asleep, being triggered by events that, you know, resemble what occurred to you. All this stuff is you. If you move that back through hundreds of years, you're responding that way because you have been traumatized, but you're also raising children who are looking at you. They don't know you have post-traumatic stress disorder, so they, in some ways, they adapt to your behavior and they normalize it. So what happens is you have dad who's behaving this way. You have a kid that didn't have the trauma, but it's basically being, you're modeling behavior. So now the child starts to take on that behavior, but then if the child has trauma, right? So now we're looking at these things cumulatively happening. So now how do you tease out from that, what I call the poison from the cookies, how do you tease out what is cultural, regular, natural, normal, and what is adaptive based on trying to survive, right? Mm -hmm. So what post-traumatic what, what post does is it takes a look at how we tease it out. How do we tease out, you know, um, uh, the whole idea that, you know, folks say, you know, oh gosh, he was good looking, he was light-skinned. No, uh, he was, she was really attractive, even though she was dark, right? These are things that are an intracultural phenomenon that happens, that continue to happen in 2021, in spite of all that we know. But so much of that has gone on for generations, and it gets fed by media, and it gets fed by all of those things. So part of what I do is I say, people, take a look, again, that inventory. But I'm not just saying to do it. I'm saying I walk people through it, my study guide. I just walk through it. How come... You, you say that about yourself. Who told you that? Why do you think they said it? Because Big Mama loved me. But Big Mama might have had some stuff that she had to adapt to. I'm not mad at her. But I'm not taking on everything Big Mama told me. <laughs> All right? Because I don't have Big Mama's experience. Mm. So that's where you change the trajectory. 
right? But if you're consistently oppressed, you break my leg and then you complain that I limp. Mm. Stop breaking my leg, right? So what post-traumatic does is say, what can I do without anybody else? Just me looking at myself, looking at my family, my father, my mother, who did, they all did the best that they could. What am I going to take from that? What am I going to learn that's going to change the trajectory for my own children and for their children, right? But again, when people know better, they can do better. And there are things we can let go of. I had a, a woman walk up to me in a parking lot and say to me, you saved my life. Now, of course, I'm not crazy. I know I didn't save your life. You saved your life. She said, but I didn't realize how hard I was on my, my baby. And I told him I loved him for the first time. Mm. Right? So I'm sitting there going, I don't even know how what I just said you translated into that. But if it did, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm good with that. But again, when people know better, they said, she said it gave me the permission I felt like I had permission to be bigger, right? Mm -hmm. And my hope is what I, I believe in all people. I love people, first of all. I am a people person, right? And, I, and my family is pretty much the United Nations. <laughs> we pretty much got everybody, right? So, you know, there's somebody to not like, they're in the family. Um, but what, what I, my hope, and my hope is always there because I believe that, you know, um, everything just want to be loved, you know, ultimately, it's it's a simple thing. And I think on a, on a spiritual level, um, I'll, I'll end with a beautiful quote. It's intense. Please, please. It's a Baha'i quote. Night has succeeded day, and day has succeeded night, and the hours and moments of your lives have come and gone. And yet none of you have consented to detach himself from that which perisheth. Bestir yourselves that the brief moments that are still yours may not be dissipated and lost. For even as the swiftness of lightning your days shall pass and your bodies shall be laid to rest beneath the canopy of dust, what can you then achieve? How can you atone for your past failure? Hmm. Wow. Love that. You were talking earlier about touch and feeling. And, um, you know, one of my favorite quotes is from Bell Hooks, who talks about the psychic act of self-mutilation that all of us young boys um, essentially engage in at an early age and the act of soul murder that we commit. And um, my personal journey has been trying to reestablish the connection between my head and my heart. And trying to feel again, honestly. And it's and it's interesting because, you know, Jamie would say and folks would say that I'm a feeling person. But I rarely have been able to actually tap in. You talked about that experience you had with that young boy. And 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 see what I feel. What do I feel about this? What does my body feel right now? What does cortisol feel in my body? Nobody asks me those questions. Yeah. We don't ask boys these questions. Mm -hmm. Instead, we ask them to suppress feeling. And... For me, one of the most important things in my life that I've worked so hard on is trying to feel um, and allow my intuition to come through. And you talk about an experience with your husband, which uh, I'm assuming is one of the many reasons you married your husband, uh -huh. um, where he exemplified and demonstrated what I would argue is the epitome of intuition and um, something that um, is praised in women and not really talked about in men like this intuition. We might have a gut feeling or something that where it's like, you know, it's in, it's conditioned as it relates to like work or maybe protecting somebody, but it, but it's but we rarely are praised for intuition. Right. And I'm just wondering if you could tell that story and how important is it for us it, for us boys <laughs> and men to develop our intuition? Oh, it's already there actually. You know, um it's just that men are taught to ignore it. Mm. It's not also fleeting. You know, it's not it's not important. You know, it's not what Right here in front of you is important. Um, and I think everybody, it's like uh, one of the things the writings say is God sends feelings of misgiving into men's hearts. Hmm. We talked about that in relationship to the Titanic <laughs> and not getting What does on that it. mean to you? I, I think that we are all given, the. I, I think it's in the universe. I think we are given this information. It's always there. It's in, you know, it's in the, in the, in the cells. It's everywhere. It's, it's what Einstein said. Yeah. The truth is everywhere. It really is. And it, the, it, I think we're shown it. Men are shown it. But there, you know, we as, as I, at least my socialization 
um, and part of it was Oscar too, is to is to be still and to think and to feel and and to believe it and to trust it. Right. Um, I guess nobody actually taught me that, but it was something that I, I, I was certainly given permission to do. And I was among others who did it as well. I think men do it, too, but they don't. And again, they rarely do it together. Right. Where where women will go. Look, there is a study that yeah. was out of UCLA. You probably know about this study where they were these two doctors. There were two physicians that were at, at on a break. And they said, you know, they wanted to look at why women in most every society outlive men. And so they, they looked at fight or flight or freeze. But women have another hormone um, that, that shows up that isn't that. It's, it's actually a hormone that is about caring. Tend and, and befriend. Tend and befriend. Yeah. So, there, so you have that, this, this, this intervening thing. And what women will do when there's a crisis or something traumatic, call Deborah, call Cynthia, get, get Kenesha. We go all get together. Right. And what these women started to do now, unlike men, if I were to say to my husband, I love him to death. I go, listen, you know, he's struggling with something. You want to you want to uh, call your brother? Or, no. <laughs> I, I got this. I got this. I'm going in the cave. I'm going to pull the shade. <laughs> yeah, right. Well, here's what they've learned about women. The more women gather, the larger the number and frequency, the longer you will live. It wow. literally is connected to life longevity. So men go in the cave, in the dark, pull the and die. <laughs> I keep telling them, come up out of there. Get your friends. Mm -hmm. Talk to somebody, right? Mm -hmm. There's absolutely no reason why that can't change. It's the socialization. It's that hyper-masculinity. Yeah. I don't need another man to tell me what to do. You know, it's insane. So it's part of what we need to do. I think I started by saying, I think we need each other. We yeah. need to come together. And men, and in different parts of the world, men do come together. Yeah. Well, and they live you longer, know? right? Sardinia is this island, that's right? That's right. That's and, right. Uh, and there have been studies on it. Like, yeah. why do men live as long as women there? And they have all these friends. They, they have do. those social ties. They have that wow. social ties. So those, literally, these connections um, become what's most critical, right? Mm. And to give yourself permission and hope to God, give your children, your sons, permission um, to be able to access that. And you. And other men, right? I think that that's part of it. We have the research. It's not like we don't know. You know, we it's so do funny because it's such a it's it's become such a masculine thing. Biohacking, right? Everyone's trying to hack longevity, and wow. it's right in front of us, mm -hmm. right? All of us men trying to like live forever and hack longevity and take all these supplements and and you know <laughs> we're taking our you know we're doing yeah. our ice baths and mm -hmm. being like Wim Hof and alone. And, and, <laughs> But but the secret is actually not all that stuff. It's just community with each other. Come on, that's out. incredible. That's the Come real biohack. And then intuition Women and your husband, real quick. Intuition and my husband. Um, so, my oldest son um, has ataxic cerebral palsy, um, pure ataxic, which is really unique. And I learned a lot. And I had literally premonitions before he was born. Mm. Um, and. Uh, He's, you know, he's totally functional. He, he lives independently, has his own place. So he's, he's got funny. a good story. Um, and people know him. They love him. Yeah. And um, but he struggles, developmental issues and things like that. He had, you know, had struggles. And he made a decision to go from Portland to somewhere in the Midwest, Wisconsin. It was a storm. I'll never forget it. So he, you know, he decides to go visit some friends. And when he gets there, uh, there's a, a situation where uh, one of the friends was drinking so much that they passed out and he got frightened. Meanwhile, one of the other people there had gotten some marijuana, which wasn't, of course, not legal. And it's probably still not legal in Wisconsin. Um, but what happens is he calls the police. That's what he thinks to do because he's scared. Well, they, in fact, the person had uh, alcohol poisoning and would have died had he not called and they got the ambulance wow. and all that. However, when they found the marijuana, they arrested him. This is in Wisconsin. Everybody else is white. And so I, of course, I'm horrified. So my husband, he calls me up and I'm in the middle of talking to the sheriff, right, which is where my son now is, even though it wasn't his marijuana, right? He's the one to call the police, all of that. I, I, you can imagine what's going through my head. I'm terrified. So uh, he, he calls me in the middle of it and he goes, what's going on? I said, well, something's happened with a son and, you know, he's in Wisconsin. He says, OK. So I said, I, I really need to deal with this. So I hang up the phone. And so I'm talking to the sheriff. And here's what's so beautiful mm -hmm. is the sheriff said, 
you have a wonderful son. Mm. We understand what's going on, right? Mm, sweet. He said that to me. I, and what I had forgotten was what I put in my son, what I knew was there in him. I couldn't believe that they would see that in him, who he was. And he said, no, he's, he's, you know, he's, he's going to be okay. But the problem was then, it was a weekend, which means he's three days. He was, he, it would be that next Monday before he, could, he would go to court. And a whole lot can happen in those places, right? So I'm horrified. And so I hang up the phone. My, my um, Latif calls me back, and I'm shaking. I'm literally, I'm physically shaking. He says, do you need for me to come? Do you need me to come? And I stop for a moment. Because this is my new drama, right? This is we're developing this relationship. And I'm, I'm saying, yeah, I need mm. you to come. And he said, open up the door. I heard it in your voice. Mm. He could feel it. And I had never had that experience for anyone to, um, to know me that way. Mm. And I said to him, I said, what would you have done if I said no? He said, you would have never known I was there. Mm. I'd have turned and left. But the fact that, you know, he... He and he's that is who he is. I mm-hmm. just that's just who he is as a person. Um, and I think you know, there's a peace that comes with that. There's a safety that comes with that. That I don't have to be the one that always carries it. Mm. That he and he's as if not more intuitive than I am in a lot of ways, you know. And um, what impressed me most about him, honestly, the very first time I ever met him, um, I met his son. I didn't even notice him. I met his, I noticed his son. <laughs> Um, and when his son came, got up to leave, so we were at a little restaurant. When his son got up to leave, he, he reached over and kissed his father on the forehead and left. And mm. I've never seen that publicly, right? And it was very natural for them because that affection, that love is just there, right? And I just was, you know, really Im- impressed by that. But yeah, that moment, mm. that moment. So, uh, so he broke, he broke the mold. We have intuition. <laughs> That's right. And we also have, uh, the normalization of men, uh, affection, uh, showing affection mm-hmm. and gathering, coming and gathering, yes. and relying on each other, reaching out, for oh. each other, giving each other permission. Beautiful. Okay. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. Should we, uh, yeah. should we do some rapid fire questions? <laughs> are you able, is that in your, are, are you we able gonna, to do gonna, rapid fire? She can do it. You can do it. I don't know. No, no, you can answers. do it. We're going to go rapid fire. We're going to ask you a question. Okay. Rapid fire means one sentence <laughs> response. Oh, okay, okay. You can do this. Right. I see you. Okay. Welcome to this week's Man Enough podcast rapid fire questions. Let's start with the audience question from Bryant's 882. If you could meet your father, grandfather, and great grandfather at the same time, and they're all in your current age, what three questions would you ask them? How did you manage it? What did you teach your your children? And what would you hope from me? Mm. Well, boom, boom. You have a time travel device and you get to go back in time to eight, nine year old Joy. What do you want to tell her? I would tell her, um, believe in yourself. What you're feeling and thinking is real, and there are people watching and helping you. Mm. Now you got a time travel device, and you get to go way far in the future. You're, you're a ghost at your funeral. What do you <laughs> hope is said about you and the, the way you move through this world? I hope they say I tried. I hope they say I made a difference. And I hope I'm known for... Uh, for being a Baha'i. Mm. <laughs> wow, Joy. You always just um, bring it, you're always authentically yourself, um, as you spoke of, and as a um, black man on this podcast, which um, primarily is um, surrounded with people that are not black. Um but we got Liz, both of y'all. But Liz is always, um, if you can't tell by now, she's she's she she's a fighter and champion. But to have you here really, really is sweet, and that our listeners will be able to hear you. Uh, let me ask you our final question. Okay. What do you think it means, as Doctor Professor Joy DeGru? What do you think it means to be man enough? 
I think it means um, to possess uh, the virtues, to be able to exemplify the virtues of kindness, justice, fairness, forgiveness, mercy, compassion. That's what I, I think it means mm. to be man enough. <laughs> Well, thank you so much for thank being you. here. This was a this was a very special special experience for all of us. I'm gonna do something that's uh, we have not done before. This is crazy. Sorry, we're gonna wrap up, but we're gonna do this. Um, and we can cut this out, but we're not going to. <laughs> so I'm gonna demand it. You brought your nephew here. I did. What's your nephew's name? My nephew's name is Jamal. I've known this boy since Degrew. he was born. Um, he does a poem mm. about love, and you spoke. You said uh, a lot of the healing work in this is about love. So I'm going to ask that Jamal come on set. Ooh, <laughs> yes. And your nephew, um, who echoes your feelings and your thoughts, shares with us a poem called Love. Jamal, can you come on up? Come on. Come on. Like, He's cursing you I right now. You can sit in my seat. <sighs> hey, man. These guys really put me on the spot here. I love you, Jamal. Jamal. I love you, Auntie Joy. Just a little background, I wrote the poem. I was coming back from my cousin Bahia wedding, and it was it was a um it was like a family reunion. I hadn't seen a lot of people in a lot of time. And I'm on the plane with my best friend Josh, and we're flying back from Portland from the wedding, and the first line of the poem just popped in my head, and I said, I went like Stuart, just give me a pen, give me give me a napkin. I just started writing the the first line a couple of lines and and then I was like, okay, that's going to be good. And then I get home, and I'm, when I, fi I find I'm like, oh. And I, like, and I just saw the first line, I started writing, and I just, the whole thing just came out in one. It was, it was one of those few times as a, as, a, as a creative person where it just doesn't stop. Yeah. And I, you're a creative person, you're a creative. I, it just, it just, it's one of those moments where it just, it wouldn't. It wouldn't stop. It just it came out of it you. It just came out of me. Um, and I will say, so um, for anyone listening, um, Jamal was a part, and uh, Jamie was as well, uh, in, of this gathering that um, I started. I was started. a small part. I only went a couple of times. Yeah, but the but times yeah. <laughs> you went, man. Um, the, the, the Basically, the gathering that um, Emily and I really got to know each other and we were dating. It was called mm. The Spiritual Talk in LA. Yeah. And every time you did a poem, the room was silent. And uh, and it, I, I always remember feeling like it brought me and my wife closer together. Really? So... so I just wanted to let you know that. Well, you're but, welcome. <laughs> but but uh, all right, love, let's hear it. Um, it's called My Life's Goal. My one and only true goal in life is to find enough room in my heart to love the entire world. That means patience, tolerance, understanding. You see, in loving others, I love myself more. One by one, I will uncover the pain and suffering of each person I encounter, trying to find a common ground. One day coming to an understanding, there was only one common ground for us all, and that is love. I will love for the sake of my own salvation and for the rest of the world's salvation and for the sake of love. I ask nothing of this world but love. I want nothing from this world but love. If not love, then maybe a little peace. If not peace, then maybe a little understanding. But maybe that's too much to ask and maybe it wouldn't last. I'm not afraid to tell you I love you or how much I love you. Maybe I'm asking too much of the world or maybe I'm asking too much of myself. Well, I'm going to give love even if I get nothing back in return because, you see, love asks for nothing. Well, nothing but love. In the words of Marvin Gaye, only love can conquer hate. In the words of John and Paul, all you need is love. In the words of the blessed beauty, love me that I may love thee. So I'm going to stand on the highest mountain and use the wind as my email address. The rivers and the oceans are my fax machine. The earth is my webpage. I'm forwarding this message and replying to this message with this message. And that is, I love. The configuration of the clouds is my font. Read the wind. Listen to the sunrise. Because in every babbling brook and every rustle of the leaves is this message. I'm using every word in a dictionary. Every letter from A to Z. Every definition is now the same. And yet we are now at a point where words mean nothing. I love the world like the beach loves the waves, like the waves love the moon, like the moon loves the sun, like the sun loves me when I shine as bright as him, and you shine, and he shines, and she shines, and if we all shine together, we might just go blind and outshine the sun. 
The sun can only be seen in the light of the sun. Love can only be seen in the light of love, in the dark of life, in the shadow of fear. Love has no peer, and love knows no fear but love. Love is not a secondhand emotion. Love is an ocean with no shore. Love is a one-note symphony played on every radio station worldwide. Love is a sickness with no cure, and yet love cures and conquers all things. And all things revolve around love. The stars shine because of love. The earth rotates and revolves because of love. I wrote this because I love and damn, I love what I wrote. My one and only true goal in life is to find enough room in my heart to love the entire world. That means patience, tolerance, understanding. You see, in loving others, I love myself more. In loving myself, I love others more. I want to love until God says, that's enough. But how much is too much love? And why wouldn't you want all the love you can have? I feel I've said enough, but the page fell in love with my pen a long time ago, and I sometimes find it hard to stop writing. Mm. And that there is what we need. <laughs> my brother, I appreciate you. Yeah, Normally I don't like you, but I love you. <laughs> wow. Yeah, All right, right, get off our set, man. All right. All right. <laughs> Wow. Thank you, Jamal. This has been a day. Thank been you. A day. Lord, Lord. And uh, all right, thank you so much for being here. Mm. Jamal, thank you for that. And uh, and I love you. And I love you. And I love and you. I love y'all. And y'all. to the listener, I love you. And thank you for being here. And we'll be right back with Man Enough. Hello and welcome back to the Man Enough podcast. Uh, wow. Mm. Mm. Wow. I have so many notes, you guys. Uh oh. I took so many notes. <laughs> Love that. Secrets make you sick. You broke oh. my leg and you're mad that I'm limping. Mm. Giving people permission to be bigger. Earned regard for white men. Yeah, that was. As respect. Broke Isn't my that leg and. Um, and complain. Complain that I live. There I'm you limping. go. I didn't. I. I couldn't and, even uh, write things down fast that enough. That one is hits home. Mm. Love that. Why does it hit home for you? Because, um, um, I mean, you know, I've said I'm, I've been I've been broken in a lot of ways. Um, she says that, and I'm thinking, like, you know, I've had some um, abuse happen to me, mm. and that's kind of like you break my leg, and then complain how I turn out. Mm. Um, so, you know, I just think about mm. all, all of that, how that affects us, everyone. Yeah, You know, the traumas that we go through, we are then going to be the product of those traumas yeah. unless they're dealt with. Yeah. Mm. Um, so, anyways, I hit home. Love that. Mm. Uh, highly encourage you to pick up her book, Post Traumatic Slave Syndrome. Um, it should be required reading in, mm-hmm. in high schools and colleges mm-hmm. and um and just thank you thank you for being here and listening and uh, wanting to learn and grow with us in real time uh i don't think there's that much more that needs to be said about her except just go and watch her videos and mm-hmm. and watch her read her research just, yeah watch her speeches and and just dig into it she is a brilliant deep spiritual woman and mm. i'm so grateful that she joined us today i just would ask liz did did you have um it's it's rare that you are in awe. <laughs> Is it? No, That's I mean sad. you're just. You know, I, it's not that because you are brilliant and. Um, uh, I mean, you always respect yeah. and love people and value sure. people, but like when you are like, you can see in your eyes, like, oh, okay, and uh, so I know you were moved a lot. Impressed. I mean, I'm just so impressed by her her research, and and it's so you know me like I I love when we're leading with solutions, and that her entire I, every answer she gave came with a solution. I think that's so, 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 so key. That we as a society, we have the solution. We can literally change the genomes and the DNA, right? Um, stop passing down this trauma from uh, black mothers to their black sons and and, and their black daughters. And it, it, it really is a collective responsibility that all of us can, mm. can play a role in. And I think that's so positive. So positive. Yeah. And when she says, um... You know, so much of her work is about being seen. When yeah. she told us the whole thing about I see you. And when people feel seen and valued, mm-hmm. um, then there's higher expectations of them. So in our work, mm. it makes me think of uh, men 
Yeah. And if we first see each other and say, man, I know you're struggling and not, and not ridicule you for not having, yeah, or not ridicule you for not having the lenses that I'd like you to have today. If I see you first and you feel seen and human, then now maybe you can then get to the next step. Mm. Mm. So for, uh, for any of you male listeners out there, we see you (laughs) and you're here and you're listening. And that says a lot about you and you give me hope. So thank you for being here. Thank you for listening to the Men Enough podcast. If you like this kind of conversation, uh, then like and follow us mm-hmm. wherever you get your podcasts. Go to menenough.com slash podcast. And um, you should definitely follow Jamie Heath because he could use a yes. few more followers. Especially on TikTok. Um, yeah. I Especially got, on TikTok. I think 40 followers on That's TikTok. That's huge. Pretty good. Yeah, it's and pretty like, good. Micro-influencer. Uh, micro, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. We will see you next time. This is Man Enough. Thank you for listening to the Man Enough podcast, produced by Wayfair Studios and presented by Procter & Gamble, in partnership with Cadence 13 and Odyssey Company. Hosted by Justin Baldoni, Liz Plank, and me, Jamie Heath. If you like what you heard, please follow us and tune in weekly as we undefine masculinity and learn in real time. Justin Baldoni, Jamie Heath, and Tara Malhotra-Feinberg from Wayfair Studios, Mark Pritchard and Carrie Rathode from Procter & Gamble, and Chris Corcoran from Cadence 13 are our executive producers. Kahea Kiwaha is our producer. Brandy Cole is head of marketing. Susie Landers O'Connell is our assistant editor. And Josh Schneider is our lead editor. Thanks for listening. 